0: Hi, guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. This is episode number one, so I'd like to thank you all for being here with me. It feels amazing to finally get this project off the ground and out into the world. Before we get started, there are a few things that I'd like to address about both myself as your host and the aims of this show at large though this is technically a linguistics podcast, I myself am not a professional linguist. i just like to get that out of the way. If you've come here hoping to walk away with knowledge about the latest breakthroughs in linguistic academia, then I'm afraid you might be in the wrong place. However, if you've ever been curious about why words mean what they mean and always wished that someone had come along and put together a greatest hits compilation of the most fascinating word evolutions in the English language then congratulations you've hit the jackpot this is just the podcast you've been looking for and i welcome you to the show when we use a word we seldom ask ourselves where that word came from we just use it and hope that it conveys some kind of meaning Because it's not particularly important for us to know where a word comes from in order to use it, it's easy to take for granted that words come from anywhere at all. Words have histories, and the present incarnation of any word is often the byproduct of many stages of change, both phonological, which refers to how a word sounds, and semantic, which refers to what a word means. This podcast is primarily concerned with the process of semantic change. Luckily for you, you won't need a degree in linguistics in order to understand what I'm talking about. If at any point I need to stop and explain a particular linguistic concept, I will, but most of the time, the technical nuts and bolts of linguistics are not going to be our foremost concern. Instead, we'll be focusing on things such as history and culture as ways of understanding language, and, more specifically, words. I almost want you to think of what I'm doing here as a form of storytelling. After all, semantic change is influenced by real people, real societies, and real historical events, so, in a way, if we're looking from the right angle, we can say that words are like little windows into the past. This concept, the idea that if words could speak, they'd have stories to tell, is what first sparked my interest in semantic change, and it's the foundational principle of this show. In modern English, the word villain means bad guy, and it's a cliche we're all familiar with. Think Darth Vader. Think Sauron. Think any character in a story who's motivated by evil for evil's sake. The word villain can also refer to the kind of person in the real world who wakes up in the morning, looks at himself or herself in the mirror, and asks, What can I do today to make the world a more miserable place than it was yesterday? Kind of like, uh, Martin Shkreli. That's how you say that guy's last name, right? Anyway, when villain first appeared in English via Old French during the early 1300s, it had nothing to do with bad guys at all. The original English definition of the word villain was lowborn, uncivilized, or rustic. Not exactly my idea of Darth Vader, or Martin Shkreli for that matter. Clearly, something has been lost in translation. Villain, the old French root word of villain, is derived from villanus, a Latin root word meaning farm worker, and that's an even further departure from my idea of Darth Vader and Martin Shkreli. Once again, something has been lost in translation. To understand how the word for farm worker became the word for bad guy, we have to turn to an unlikely source, the country estates of ancient Rome. This is where the story of the modern villain begins. But first, let's cover a bit of history. Like urban life today, urban life in ancient Rome was exhausting. As a way of dealing with this, rich Romans began building luxury estates for themselves located outside of the city. These estates were called villae. In Latin, villa, the singular of villae, meant country house, and this word has come down to us in modern English as villa. Though its pronunciation is a little different, both the spelling and the meaning of the word have remained virtually unchanged for over 2,000 years. The two main types of villas in ancient Rome were urban villas and rustic villas. Urban villas were basically glorified resorts, while rustic villas were agricultural estates resembling modern-day plantations. Because the upkeep of these villas, especially the rustic villas, was so demanding, entire communities of peasant laborers had to live on the premises, sometimes year-round. These laborers were called villani, and they lived in the word willanus, singular of willani, referred to someone who worked and lived on the premises of a villa. It could be translated as farm worker, and this is the word that passed into English as vilain and ultimately villain. The word willaticus, singular of willatici, collectively referred to the small, unglamorous living quarters on the premises of a villa that were occupied by the Willani, and this is the word that passed into English as village. So, villa, village, vilain, and ultimately villain are all cognates derived from the same Latin root word for country house. If you're wondering why the Latin forms of these words begin with a W sound and the English forms of these words begin with a V sound, it's because by the time Latin had splintered off into the Romance languages, including French, which is where English gets its bulk of Latin words from, a sound shift had taken place. The native Latin W sound was newly reinvented as the V sound. I feel inclined to mention that the Latin W sound was actually written with the symbol for the letter V in modern English, but since this digression doesn't directly impact today's story, I think it's best to save the details for another time. The relationship between villa farm workers and the villa landowners not only gave us the etymological foundation of the word villain, but also the socioeconomic foundation of medieval feudalism. And, as it turns out, this is actually relevant to the story at hand. On the verge of its collapse, the late Roman Empire faced a handful of problems such as declining birth rates, financial instability, and threats of invasion. In an attempt to stabilize and save their civilization, Roman administrators froze the existing social structures in place so that politicians remained in office, sons inherited their father's trades, and so on and so forth. However... For peasant farm workers, the attempt to keep things the same brought about a significant change. These workers now became legally bound to the landowners for whom they worked, and they were not allowed to leave the land they occupied. Unbeknownst to the farm workers, these were the early seeds of full-fledged feudalism. When the Latin-derived French word vilain was absorbed by English during the early Middle Ages, it became the word for the most common type of feudal peasant. So, who were the villeins, and what were their lives like? Villeins worked on large estates called manors and occupied a social space somewhere between a free peasant and a slave. They worked directly for landowning manor lords in return for a small plot of land, military protection, and certain legal rights in court. Now, you might be thinking that sounds like a pretty good deal, but before we jump to conclusions, let's look at some legal documents from this time period to get a sense of where villeins actually ranked in the social hierarchy. Sir Edward Coke, considered to be the single greatest jurist of the Elizabethan era, stated in a court of law that, quote, a lord may beat his villein with or without cause, and the villein shall have no remedy, end quote. And John Bouvier, author of an influential 18th century law dictionary, claimed that, quote, a lord's rule over his villein is absolute. He can sell them and treat them as he pleases. They are his chattel. End quote. So, I think you get the idea. Villeins were perceived by the upper class as inherently inferior human beings, and it's from this biased point of view that we get the original English definition of villain meaning lowborn, uncivilized, or rustic. Villain was basically a broad, loaded term used by manorial lords to describe the Villains who worked for them. The modern French and Italian languages have inherited this prejudice a little more directly than English. In French, villain means ugly, and in Italian, villano means rude or ill-mannered. Many people believe that Villains were the descendants of Cain, mankind's first murderer according to the Old Testament. As an extension of their cursed destiny, it was believed that Valanes outright deserved their lives of servitude and were hellbound from the start. Now, I'm not using hellbound as a turn of phrase here. You have to keep in mind that we're talking about a point in history where, by modern standards, everyone was a religious fanatic. If you said the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time of day, you might ignite a distant eruption of fire and brimstone. So, if a manor lord told his Valaines that they were going to hell, both parties probably believed it. This kind of religious pseudoscience was so influential that its rhetoric was absorbed by the king. But, really, that's not so surprising, is it? In response to the famous Peasants' Revolt in 1381, Richard II declared, quote, "'Valanes ye are, and Valanes ye shall remain.'" If we look at artwork from this era, we find another manifestation of this anti villain prejudice. The Luttrell Psalter provides a great example. The Luttrell Psalter was commissioned by a 14th century British lord named Geoffrey Luttrell, and it's significant because it contains many illustrations depicting the Valanes who lived and worked on his manor. For those of you who don't know, a Psalter is basically an illustrated volume of the biblical book of Psalms. The Vilaines and the Luttrell Psalter look outright ghastly. Their faces are pale and chalky and smeared with dirt. They have disgruntled expressions and unattractive features such as crooked noses and knob-like bones. And, to top it off, they're always performing arduous tasks. In contrast, the Psalter's depiction of the upper-class nobility is exactly what you would expect. Refined, dignified, and pious. By the late 17th century, Villain's original definition, low-born, uncivilized, or rustic, was on its way to becoming obsolete. What happened? Well, in 1660, feudalism was abolished in England, leaving the fate of Villain dangling in the wind. It could no longer be associated strictly with Villains because Villains no longer existed in the social hierarchy, so Either the word would be forgotten completely, or its meaning would have to undergo a change, adapting it to a more general usage. The Online Etymology Dictionary cites the following phases of the word's development from the 14th century through the late 19th century. farmworker, peasant, boar, clown, miser, knave, and scoundrel. It's clear from this chronological sequence that, at some point between the oldest and most recent definitions, the word villain was used as a general insult. If a guy came over for dinner and broke your plate, you'd call him a villain. If a guy cut you in line at the marketplace, you'd call him a villain. It's not uncommon for a word describing a marginalized group of people to be adapted as a general insult. The words gay and faggot are contemporary examples of offensive, mindless synonyms for uncool, and it's possible that villain was used in a similar colloquial fashion until the extremity of the insult spiraled so out of control that to be a villain suddenly meant that you were evil incarnate. So, even in light of the words full evolution, there's still one thing we haven't talked about. How did the word villain become associated with the bad guys in books and movies? Well, in the 1800s, villain of the piece became a common turn of phrase used in reference to theatrical plays. Before long, the phrase was applied to all forms of narrative, and the expression was shortened to just villain. However, Theatrical villains of this time period were more often troublemakers or instigators than the evil for evils sake villains that appear in books and movies today. The modern villain is really a product of 20th century culture. I'd like to take this moment to talk about something that I haven't explicitly addressed yet. If we were to go back in time and spend an evening with a family of Valaines, we probably would find them just as ill-mannered and uncivilized as their landowners did hundreds of years ago. But let's stop and think about this for a second. If we ourselves were poor, uneducated, medieval peasants bound to the same tiny plot of land for our entire lives, we'd be using some pretty uncivilized etiquette too. Manners are not inborn. Manners are cultural. So, of course, if you were to look down from the perspective of the upper-class lords, the Villaines manners seemed uncivilized and disgusting. But if you were to look from the perspective of the Villains, the Lord's exploitations probably seemed equally uncivilized and disgusting. This brings me to what I consider to be the most profound point of this whole story. Every phase of the word villains' moral deterioration was influenced by the biased point of view of the upper class. Villains didn't define themselves as low-born or uncivilized. Their landowners did, These manor lords not only had political and financial power, but also linguistic power. You see, during this time period, Valains were unanimously illiterate, so we'll never get to know what their lives were like in their own words. Imagine an alternate version of history where Valains were in a position of linguistic power instead of their manor lords. If this were the case, our modern word for bad guy probably would be derived from manor lord or landowner instead of villain. If Villains had commissioned the Luttrell Psalter instead of Geoffrey Luttrell himself, my guess is that the upper class would have been portrayed not as dignified, refined, and pious, but as a bunch of greedy jerks. At this point, we've come face to face with the great irony of the word villain. To our modern sensibilities, it's the exploitative, feudal landowners who seem villainous, not the villains Whether in fiction or in the real world, our modern idea of villainy is more often linked to abuses of wealth and power than to the arbitrary circumstances of a low-class birth. In this sense, the connotation of the word has completely flipped on its head. Well, that's it, guys. Episode one is in the tank. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach me directly with comments, criticisms, questions, or anything at all, you can email me at wordsforgranted@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're already in love with the show and want something more, head over to the Words for Granted blog at wordsforgranted.com. Each week, I'll be posting short articles about the origins of words relevant to current events. I also urge you to leave a positive review on iTunes if you get the chance. It really helps put the show into the hands of more listeners and ultimately keeps the show alive. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so via Patreon. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a great crowdfunding service that helps independent creators get their work out into the world. You can pledge as little or as much money as you'd like. Just head over to wordsforgranted.com to find the link. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Oh, and one more thing. I'd like to give a shout out to Zach Tenorio Miller from Arc Iris for providing Words for Granted with music. You can find out more about Arc Iris at arcirismusic.com. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted.